We worried that this would happen and it's happening. Covid anti-vaccine sentiment is now bleeding over into other vaccines and parents are increasingly hesitant to get their kids vaccinated against all sorts of other things, including measles. And one of those uh, uh, and and one of the problems with that is we are now starting to see outbreaks exactly as predicted. You might remember back in November, we talked about uh, this story. CNN reported as measles outbreak sickens more than a dozen children in Ohio, local health officials seek help from the CDC. A growing measles outbreak in Columbus has sickened more than a dozen unvaccinated children and hospitalized nine of them. Look at that ratio, 75 percent hospitalization. We often forget how serious measles is, particularly in kids, because vaccination is so effective. And this leads to some parents saying, whoever heard of a kid getting measles? It doesn't sound like it's likely and it certainly doesn't sound serious. That's because of vaccines. We have a report now from um, NBC four about how vaccine hesitancy that has sort of spilled over from covid vaccines into other vaccines is causing exactly this problem. Take a listen to this. Hey there, everybody. U.S. childhood vaccinations have dipped again this year. A new report from the CDC suggests what started as a concern about the COVID-19 vaccine, especially in younger people, is now carrying over into other shots, too, including polio, diphtheria and measles. It's likely one of the reasons cluster outbreaks of diseases such as measles are on the rise. CDC reports show last year it was in the Twin Cities, Minnesota area. Currently, it's in and around Columbus, Ohio. In the Columbus outbreak, there are over 85 cases and can be counting. That was compared to last week's data. But over 30 of those kids were hospitalized, um, and most of those cases were in unvaccinated children. Yeah. Dr. Denise Warwick is a pediatrician who told me this new report shows overall those receiving vaccines required by most states is now at about 93%. It was at 95% just two years ago before the pandemic began. Now, that 93 and 95 percent number is actually critically important. The herd immune measles is so contagious that the herd immunity threshold to prevent outbreaks is considered to be 95 percent. That has dropped to 93 percent when it comes to children entering kindergarten with with the required immunizations, 93 percent. When you were below, you know, people think, oh, this is some vague thing. It's just numbers. No, it has real world consequences. When you go below that herd immunity threshold for some diseases, you will start to see outbreaks. And that is exactly what is going on. And this was the fear that the covid anti-vaxxers who first entered anti-vaxxerism with the covid vaccine would bleed over into more general opposition to child vaccinations because the general environment starts to become one of vaccine hesitancy. And if you get enough people in a community that are skeptical or opposed to vaccines, it can make others in the community more likely to say, well, if these three families aren't doing it, maybe I shouldn't do it either. If the healthcare providers, if the public health officials aren't well prepared to deal with the vaccine hesitancy, they are going to be under resourced and not able to keep those vaccine rates up. And I've spoken to a number of pediatricians. I know friends of mine who say I get more people than ever, even in liberal areas, people coming to me 
and saying, you know, does my child really need all these vaccines? Some of these things don't really seem super serious or they don't seem super common or likely that my child would get. And the pediatricians have to explain, well, that's because of the success and effectiveness of many of these vaccines. This is a separate conversation from the covid vaccine. And unfortunately, what we expected to see happen is indeed happening, as we see in these reports. Uh, what will turn it around? I quite frankly don't know. It's uh, pretty horrifying, to be totally honest. Yet another Republican has been caught committing voter fraud. A Republican's wife has been arrested for casting 23 fraudulent votes for her husband. Remember, voter fraud of this kind is very rare. But when we find it, it's almost always Republicans. Insider reports that Kim Fong Taylor was arrested and accused of multiple counts of voter fraud. Prosecutors say that she cast 23 fraudulent votes for her husband in the 2020 election. Her husband, Jeremy Taylor, is an elected Republican. There's an 11 page indictment. It is wild. It claims that Kim Fong Taylor, quote, visited numerous households within the Vietnamese community in Woodbury County. She collected absentee ballots from people who weren't there, filled them out, cast the ballots herself, quote, causing the casting of votes in the names of residents who had no knowledge of and had not consented to the casting of their ballots. Taylor is also accused of signing voter registration forms on behalf of residents who were not present. That's a crime. In total, it is 26 counts of providing false information, three counts of fraudulent registration and 23 counts of fraudulent voting. Each charge carries a maximum five year prison sentence. Wow. The goal was to get her husband elected. I want to remind people again and again and again, and I will continue saying this until I don't need to say it anymore. Voter fraud is very rare. It's also a pretty futile strategy that is not likely to win an election and the potential consequences of getting caught make it very much not worth the risk up to five years potentially for each of those counts. She's not going to get, you know, it's 50 counts total five years. She's not going to get 250 years. I will bet any amount of money on that. But the risk reward is very much out of balance. Voter fraud is a really ineffective and inefficient way to try to win an election because the number of fraudulent votes is almost always too small to actually impact the outcome. And the risk of getting caught for voter fraud is high. Now, Republicans will say everybody's getting away with voter fraud. All these Democrats are getting away with it. The truth is there is no reason to believe that that's the case. And we've seen the Brennan Center for Justice study the numbers. The penalties for being caught are severe. It is a really bad political strategy. It's relatively easily detected and it would be better for these people to spend their energy on activating voters help make the case that voters should vote for a candidate because they think that that candidate would actually do good things for them. I know it's like a crazy thing to think about, but that would be a much better way to spend your time. And the last element of this is. When people get caught. It's almost always Republicans, even though Republicans claim it's Democrats that do this. Now, one could say, David, Democrats are doing it, but they're getting away with it. Republicans are getting caught, but way more Democrats do it and get away with it. Well, you've got to defend that with some data. Why is it that Democrats are so much smarter and able to get away with it? There is no evidence of that whatsoever. We have yet 
another potential Trump criminal scandal on our hands. Donald Trump's Saudi Arabia payments are sparking fresh calls for a, a spark, sparking calls for a fresh investigation, writes Ewan Palmer for Newsweek. Let's take a look at this article. Donald Trump should be investigated over the payments he received to host the Saudi Arabia backed live golf tour at his resorts, according to an organization set up by supporters of the murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Democracy for the Arab World Now group has called for the DOJ and Congress to look into the, quote, disturbing facts and circumstances surrounding that golf tour and ties to Trump. On January 13th, it was revealed during court proceedings that the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, that's the sovereign wealth fund headed by the country's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, owns 93 percent of live and pays 100 percent of the costs. Don claims this is the first time that the full extent of the sovereign wealth funds ownership in live golf has been disclosed. Understand that this uh, immediately points to money transfers from the Saudi royal family through that sovereign wealth fund to Trump by virtue of paying to host the live golf tournaments at Trump's golf courses, including Bedminster in 2022. This potentially relates to money laundering. This potentially relates to an influence scam. And of course, all of the answers to what we are looking for are found in Hunter Biden's laptop, right? That must be the answer. No, um, listen, in all seriousness, we all suspected this. We all suspected that this golf tournament and Saudi Arabia, and this goes beyond just the United States. This was a mechanism to transfer huge amounts of money. It could be to Trump. It could be to other other world leaders because there are live golf tournaments in various places. And when we talk about Trump and influence peddling, it already is. It's beyond the pale that Trump's Washington, D.C. hotel is not the subject of more scrutiny because during Trump's presidency, that hotel was a nexus of massive money transfers and emoluments that were received by Trump, world leaders looking to ingratiate themselves with Donald Trump saying, hey, well, I'll, I'll stay at Trump's hotel and I'll mention that I'm staying at Trump's hotel that it, it's a it's a borderline crime that that hasn't been further investigated. But this one was so obvious. This is so obvious. Trump was criticized for hosting a bunch of different lift golf events at his resorts, but we didn't understand the full scope of what is essentially the royal family owning this entire thing. So Saudi royal family controls the sovereign wealth fund. Sovereign wealth fund owns 93 percent of the golf tournament and pays 100 percent of those costs. This is um, the revelation in practice that millions of dollars from the Saudis have been going not in terms of arms deals. Arms deals are bad enough, but at least they are public or semi public. This was a subterfuge of sorts. There should be another investigation, and it is exhausting to even keep up with this. The other aspect to the Saudi Trump connection is, of course, Jared Kushner and Jared Kushner's uh, role and connections and relationships with these very same folks involved in the sovereign wealth fund. Are we ever going to know the full scope? I don't believe we are. I don't know that we are ever going to unwind everything that went on during those insane four years. But one of the things we can do is do everything within our power to prevent there being another four years just like it. Make sure you are subscribed on YouTube 
to the David Pakman show at youtube.com slash the David Pakman show. We really need your help. Something is happening on YouTube with the algorithm where it's not just the David Pakman show. Many channels like ours are being deprioritized. It has been years since we have talked about this because it has not been an issue for years. Something is happening systematically to a half dozen channels like ours, and it seems to be algorithmic. So the best thing you can do, leave a comment, like our videos and make sure that you are indeed subscribed. We're going to take a quick break and the Friday show rolls on right after this. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact based reporting for some much needed clarity in the finance world, helping you to make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without conflict, making a balanced budget, boosting your credit score, saving more money for retirement all sorts of really useful topics. Most people in the audience know I'm a big financial literacy advocate. I can tell you Nerd Wallet does a fantastic job here. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I've had such trouble finding a great razor where I am not cutting myself or getting those nicks on my skin, which are so common with the cheap disposable razors. You have to meet our sponsor, Henson Shaving. Henson actually manufactures parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. And they are bringing that exact same precision engineering to the shaving experience. It hurts when you shave because blades extend too far and thus they wobble slightly. But with their aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson is able to make metal razors that extend just 0.0013 inches. That's less than the thickness of a human hair, which means a secure, stable blade with the vibration free shave. It also has built in channels to evacuate the hair and the cream. No more clogs, no more rubbing your thumb on the razor to get the hair out. I use Henson at home. Shaving is a great experience now. Henson wants to be the best razor, not the best razor business, which means you only need to buy it once and it's awesome. Go to hensonshaving.com slash Pacman, add a razor and a hundred pack of blades to your cart, then enter the code Pacman to get the hundred blades for free. That is a three year supply. That's H E N S O N shaving.com slash Pacman. Use code Pacman. The link is in the podcast notes. The David Pacman Show continues to be a community funded program. You can support the work we do so many different ways, but the best way, the most powerful way, the most direct way continues to be to sign up at joinpacman.com and get yourself a membership. Not only will you get access to the daily bonus show and the commercial free audio and video streams of the show, and you'll get the show hours before everybody else, and you'll get invited to the member town halls. We are also soon to launch a member soundboard where you will have access to my soundboard clips. Obama. Oh, the bonus show where you want to make money. But everybody else that makes money to fund themselves is bad. You will get access to the soundboard. Okay, very, very uh, cool stuff going on. Sign up at joinpacman.com. 
Let's hear from people in the audience. We are going to take some calls because it is, after all, Friday. We do this via Discord at davidpackman.com slash Discord. Let's go to Wesley from Nashville. Wesley, welcome to the program. What is on your mind today, my friend? David, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Hi. So I was just wondering uh, where you would currently assess our chances of the United States defaulting on its national debt if the Republicans uh, fail and the Freedom Clock is able to hold Congress hostage enough and uh, Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling. Extremely low. I would not bet that the U.S. is going to default on its debt. Uh, I believe that Republicans are more than willing to damage the country by holding out on the debt ceiling debate. I believe ultimately the same thing that always happens is going to happen. The U.S. will not default on its debt. And uh, even the Freedom Caucus crazies are not going to ultimately make that happen. Interesting. I guess I was just wondering because I was reading something on The New York Times this morning regarding uh, a couple discussions about the last major uh, debt ceiling fight. Yes. And how the Democrats and the Republicans kind of had two different takeaways as a result. And I just worry when I look at, you know, the Chip Roy's and the Matt Gates's, if they even really understand the implications of the breaking chip they're practicing and what would actually occur if the United States was to default. And I think that makes uh, I wonder if that makes the risk so much like significantly higher than where we typically would assume it would be. Well, they don't understand it. But here's the thing. Even if they did, they wouldn't really care. So it's one of those things where you're completely right. They don't actually understand it. But I also don't believe that they would dramatically change their views if all of a sudden you explained it to them. These these people have a completely different moral compass and framework than we do. And um, I just don't think they care. I I fully, fully agree. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, big fan, been a big watcher for years and years. First time caller. Obviously, I'm a bit nervous, but hopefully this was a satisfactory call for you and your show today. More so that more more than satisfactory, Wesley. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. There we go. Wesley from Nashville with some very important statements and questions. Let's go next to Dimitro from Ukraine, also a website member. Dimitro, thank you so much for your support on the website. I very much appreciate that. And if you unmute yourself, I will be able to talk to you. Yeah. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Uh, I'm not going to take much time. I just wanted to say that I'm grateful for your position and for support of American people to my country. You're currently in Ukraine? Yeah, Yeah, I'm from Kiev. Are you, I mean, do you feel safe right now? Uh, Yeah, I got used to all this stuff. So yeah, I think so. And when you say used to, what are you dealing with on a daily basis? Uh, well, it's uh, like uh, some uh, air uh, alerts time to time, so, yep. but uh, people are going to work, people are like trying to live their lives, you know, to not become insane or something. You know, one of the things that is incredible, Dmitro, is the degree to which humans adapt and unthinkable situations become your everyday reality. And it's simultaneously heartbreaking, but also incredibly inspiring that that people adapt. But obviously we want things to change so that you're not dealing with air raid sirens on the way to work. Yeah, I agree. People adapt. And uh, yeah, 
I, I'm great, grateful to American people, and to be honest, uh, uh, I uh, watch American politics time to time because uh, you know a lot of stuff actually affect us. And I was uh, nervous during this uh, speaker uh, election or Senate elections, so I think everything is going to be okay. I I admire your optimism, and I really appreciate you calling in today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, there is Dimitro from Ukraine. Why don't we go? Um, why don't we go next to David from Philadelphia and see what's going on in uh, Philadelphia? David from Philadelphia, welcome to the program. What is on your mind today? Oh, no, we might be losing David from Philadelphia, sir. All right, well, no David from Philadelphia. Let's instead try George from Virginia. George from Virginia, welcome. George from Virginia, you're on. George from Virginia, you almost certainly have the wrong audio device selected. Oh, okay. there you go. Now you're back. Go, go oh, ahead. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for taking my call. I really enjoy your show. Um, I wanted to bring up something that's kind of been bothering me lately. Um, <laughs> if you look at like the media and even like independent creators in the left uh, space. Sure. I've seen a lot of fawning over uh, Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, do you think there's like a tendency for people and especially the media to kind of focus on like, the you know, he does so well in interviews, like he owns uh, Republicans so well. But if you look at his job performance, it's I'm just not seeing it. You're you know saying I mean? that as secretary of transportation, you don't think his performance has been good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So and- here's the thing. I, there's two different conversations here, George. Right. One conversation is, do we think that in terms of image and performance, he's the type of person who could win an election? And then secondly, is the analysis of how do we evaluate his job performance as secretary of transportation on the second part? I don't have an answer in the sense that he's been getting blamed for stuff that really has nothing to do with him, to be totally honest, including like, for example, the global supply chain issues like that's not Pete Buttigieg's fault. The FAA thing, I don't know from what I've read. It it doesn't really seem like it's his fault. But let's let me put that aside for a second. What I think makes Pete Buttigieg an interesting potential presidential candidate is that he has a number of characteristics that make him a good modern presidential candidate. And what I mean by that is, yes, he is very good in adversarial think on your feet positions, particularly with bad faith right wingers. That actually matters right now when you think about how you become the nominee and eventually the president. Number two, he has enough policy ideas in enough areas. You can talk to Pete Buttigieg about transportation, electric cars, foreign policy, China, education, Latin America, and he's not going to get embarrassed on any issue. And he'll probably have at least an idea to put forward on any one of those issues. That's really important. He won't come off as a buffoon on any issue. Um, He's well spoken. So so do you understand the, the difference between the two analyses that we're doing? Yes. Yeah, I I understand that. So I would be more than willing to entertain the job performance things you're bringing up. I think they are basically at this point, for better or worse, 
completely divorced from whether he would be a good candidate. It's sort of like Gavin Newsom. I'm not like a huge fan of Gavin Newsom's politics necessarily, but I do think he has an attitude that is useful for Democrats to have when it comes to Republicans in 2023. So he's the type of guy who might do well in a campaign, even if he's not like the uber progressive or the guy I would say, this is who I would love to see as president. Yeah, I I think you make a lot of valid points. Um, But uh, just to end my uh, opinion here, I just wanted to say, like, I'm a little bit worried because there's so many Americans who have been impacted by the airline situations. Yeah. And if Democrats push this guy center stage, even if he speaks well and all that, people might be like, no, this guy sucks. You know, he the airlines were horrible under him. And I feel like it could sabotage the Democrats if they choose a guy like this. That's always possible. I mean, now you're making a prediction and I'm terrible at predictions, so you may well be right. It may end up being a terrible self-sabotage or not. I just don't know. Well, I I really appreciate your opinion and uh, thank you very much. All right. George from Virginia. uh, Appreciate the discussion very, very much. Why don't we go? uh, Why don't we go next to? Oh, I don't know. It's so tough to say. What about Keon from North Carolina? Keon, am I saying that correctly? Keon from North Carolina, please join the chat, my friend. And absolutely last chance for Keon from North Carolina. Keon is gone. Very, very important stuff. All right, let's try Neville from California. Neville from California. Welcome to the program. Neville from California, I have invited you to join folks, please, uh, please stay near your devices. Neville, welcome. Neville from California, you've got to fix your audio if you want to talk to me, my friend. Last chance, Neville, you there? Neville is gone. All right, let's go to Tom from Jersey. Listen, if there's ever been a time to go to New Jersey for for saving us, I think it's right now. Tom from Jersey, what's going on? Hey, David, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I was getting worried. I was like, is this like a, am I be the next one? <laughs> but um, just, you know, I live in Jersey. It's great. It's a blue state. I'm really happy with how our state government functions. But there is one issue I have that I've also noticed is an issue with a lot of other blue states. In fact, I think the, someone from the New York Times is saying about this. Okay. New Jersey, for being the most diverse state in the country, is also school-wise one of the most segregated. Hmm. And in Connecticut, which is also supposed to be a liberal state, it's I believe it's the state with the largest income disparity because you have like wealthy people who live in Stanford yep. right next to low-income people who live in Newport. I mean, in New Bridgeport and New Haven, correct, and Washington, they have really, um, really favorable corporate tax rates for like Amazon. And in California, they talk about the housing, but whenever they try to build uh, multifamily or single or affordable housing, a lot of people who live in like San Francisco or stuff get really upset. So, why do you think we keep seeing this issue of these liberal states or people who live in these liberal areas who? Frankly, I just seem to be helping push inequality or helping or not super. Uh, invested in trying to attack systems or reform systems that cause this type of inequality. I'm not saying the that makes answer sense. is an interesting one. This has been studied. So the, if I understand correctly, Tom, the main question you're asking is, 
It's liberals and blue states that talk about fixing income inequality, yet it's many of those very blue states that have the most income inequality, right? I mean, is that more or less what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So two things on that. Number one, the examples you're giving are absolutely accurate when it comes to particularly um, Connecticut. However, if you zoom out and look at the country in total, it's only slightly worse of an issue overall in blue versus red states, the inequality issue. It is an issue. So you're, you're right in your analysis, but it's only to a relatively small degree. So on average, blue states are a little more unequal than red states, but not by a huge margin. But it's sort of a result of the fact that blue states are economically more successful. And it's basically a result of the fact that on average, blue states have higher incomes, average incomes. And that is pulled up by blue states having more wealthy people. And that increases the level of inequality by virtue of having those additional wealthy people. So it's a result both of the successes of those very policies and the fact that that is what increases the very inequality that these states want to fix. Okay. I always knew. Yeah, I never I always knew that we were better at it than the red states, but I always thought to myself, just because we're better than them doesn't mean we shouldn't look into it. Absolutely. And there's if you Google liberal states and income inequality, you'll find a ton of good resources on this. It's been widely studied. Yeah, you know, but, you know, I'd never want to live in a red state. I'd stay in New Jersey or New York my whole life. Never All right. Well, that's your right, my friend. All right. Have a great day. OK, thank you. There's Tom from Jersey. Tom is not leaving Jersey is the message we are getting or he'll go to New York, which is also completely fine. All right. Let's take a very quick break. I'm taking more calls. It's just I need a very quick break. Hang on and then we'll get right back to it. Are you tired of the same old off the shelf grocery store honey? Look no further than Manukora, our sponsor. The honey is made by bees that pollinate the native Manuka trees in the remote forests of New Zealand. It gives it a unique, dark, rich, delicious flavor that you won't find in any other honey. It is 100% raw. If you look at it side by side with regular boring honey, you can see the difference. I've got my honeys next to each other on the counter and it looks very different. Manukora is also responsible and sustainable. All Manukora honey is harvested using traditional methods so you can enjoy your creamy caramel honey, knowing that the production was easy on the bees and on the planet. I've been adding Manukora honey to my tea and my toast It's a great natural sweetener in any recipe. It really stands out from everyday honey. So don't settle for the ordinary honey when you can enjoy the unique, delicious flavor of Manukora. Go to Manukora.com slash Pacman and use the code Pacman for a free pack of honey sticks. Very nostalgic to when I was a kid with your order, a $15 value. Taste the difference for yourself. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash Pacman. Promo code Pacman gets you a free pack of honey sticks. The link is in the podcast notes. 
Let's get back to hearing from the most important people in our ecosystem, the audience. We do take these calls uh, for the Friday show. We do it via discord at davidpackmancom slash discord, and you can join what is called the waiting lobby. Let's go to Alex from Vienna. Now, Alex, is that Vienna, Austria, or is it like, you know, Vienna, Idaho or so? I don't know that Idaho really has a Vienna, but. Hey David, thanks for taking my call. No, it's uh, Austria and Vienna, Austria. Yeah. Have you uh, called Austria, in Vienna. before? No, it's my first time. Oh, your first and, time. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, I'm a little bit nervous. Thank you're you doing great so call. far. You've stated your name and where you're calling from beautifully, and I, that's an auspicious beginning. Perfect. Thank you so much. Pleasure. So uh, I have an overall question. Um, how can we uh, left prox uh, left prox? Uh, improve because uh, I think it was uh, in the United States that uh, who was it Gavin Newsom said something like that that the leftists have to be more um, uh, pop populists. I don't uh, remember populist. Newsom saying more populist. What I remember Newsom saying is Democrats and the left need to be more ruthless. We need yes. to be unabashed. We need to, you know, but to, to uh, that was the gist of his comments, as I recall them. OK, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And in Austria, we had a, um, a similar discussion. I mean, it was six, six or seven years ago by uh, Peter Pilz. He was mm -hmm. from the Green Party and he tried this approach and he was a uh, overall a, a really good um, person who tried to um, yeah, I'm, as, as you can hear, I'm nervous. Sorry. Um, you're, you're doing great. Price. Yeah. So, but so yes, is your so. is your question mm -hmm. about whether this is a good strategy? E yes, and how to improve? Listen, we it's in, in the United States. Democrats aren't really doing this yet. They're not being ruthless, to use Gavin Newsom's word. So, I don't know if it's a good strategy. What I can tell you, Alex, is. The status quo is not working very well. And even though the left is right on so many issues, we're losing the discussion on a lot of those issues when really we should be winning because we actually are on the right side of the issue. So it's very plausible that changing how we talk about these issues is a great starting point. And I like the idea of Gavin Newsom. Now, will it work? It's a, that's a predictive statement. We have to try it and see. But listen, okay. what what do we have to lose at this point? You know, yeah, yeah, for sure. Because uh, the the parties on the right, uh, you know, they're sealing the 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 topics, yes, and and manipulating them, something like that. One hundred percent. I mean, we can do that as well in a positive sense, I would say. Yes, uh, and uh, and not just uh, being in the defense all the time. That that's the impression I've got in my own country. Yeah, I am with you, and uh, I hope to visit Austria soon. I was supposed to right before the start of the pandemic, and then we all know what happened. And I would like to get back. I want to go to Vienna. I'd like to go to Salzburg. I, I want to be all over the country. <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah, uh, I might be uh, again in the states this year. Like, oh well, then like I'll miss you. Year, I guess that's so, yeah. too bad. All right, Alex from Vienna. Thank you for the call. Thank you. All thank right. you. Bye. Very very good. Did an excellent job. Excellent job. Let's go to uh, is it pronounced Jaquavius Jaquavius? Am I pronouncing that correctly? 
Jaquavius, are you with us? Jaquavius, you're on, but you have to select the correct audio device. Last chance for Jaquavius to fix your audio. Are you there, Jaquavius? No, Jaquavius is gone. That's too bad. Uh, Sad, quite, quite sad, in fact. Why don't we go to Nico from Illinois? Nico from Illinois, welcome to the program. What is on your mind today? Hello. Nico. Nico, we heard you. I don't know why you muted yourself. All right, there we go. Uh, Hey, David, Uh, this is my first time calling in. And I kind of just had a question about social media and influencers and how they subliminally push kind of right wing ideas Mm -hmm. and how they kind of get these kids that follow them to believe into these right wing ideas and how you what's an example kind of educate them. What's an example? Uh, Just with like Andrew Tate and all that stuff that's gone on with him. I feel like there's a lot of um, influencers out there that kind of like support him and try to make him seem like he's this really cool guy. See, here's and- the thing about that. Here's my thought, Nico. And I, I, this is an ongoing conversation that, that we can have. And I, I just am not sure. It seems that these types of people appeal to exactly the same folks. And what I mean by that is, you know, I did this segment a few weeks ago about um, Liver King and Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson. And I didn't mean to say that they are the same in their ideologies. In fact, they are quite different. But the point was they end up pulling in basically young men, often with less going on socially than they would like, often less relational, you know, less involved in relationships than they would like, often without a defined or successful career path yet. And so they end up being different flavors of characters that pull in the same types of people. And I'll give you an example. I don't know anybody and I'm sure they exist anecdotally, but I don't know anyone who works in, you know, has a good job as a lawyer or as an accountant or or, you know, even a success, whatever and is sitting there watching Andrew Tate videos. You, you know what I mean? It just it yeah. seems like it's it's mostly young men that get sucked in. So while I agree with you that it's a bad thing that these figures pull people into this sort of like pseudo right wing, pull yourself up by your, your bootstraps type ideology, it's really only afflicting a particular demographic group overwhelmingly. Right. And I was just just because I was just wondering this because I had seen a report that supposedly in the UK they're kind of like reteaching these young kids to try to get them away from these like Andrew Tate effect and all that stuff. So yeah. I just didn't know if that was like a good way to go at it or if it was just kind of like a waste of time because at the end of the day these kids are going to go home and just watch what they want to watch. You know, that's true. And, you know, I, I know a high school principal I was recently taught. It's actually a middle and high school principal. And she was telling me that she's aware of seventh and eighth graders who watch Andrew Tate. And that's really the risk, because these these kids haven't even really defined anything about themselves yet. And that's where it's like now that's that seems like a particularly pernicious age at which to be consuming that type of nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. like, it's not like they kind of let you form your own opinion. You know, they kind of just force this stuff on you. And yeah, I don't without know. a doubt, it's just not something that 
I would want my kid to <laughs> be exposed to, you know. I agree. I agree. Well, I appreciate the call. Yeah, thank you for taking my call, sir. All right, take care. There is Nico from Illinois. Very important declarations, I think. Let's go to Jonathan from Ohio. Jonathan from Ohio, welcome to the program. Uh, what can I do for you today? What's on your mind? Oh, boy. Jonathan from Ohio, please select the correct audio device so that we can hear you. And last chance for Jonathan from Ohio. Um, can you hear me now? I can hear you, sir. Hello, sir. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, this is more. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, this is more, um, something that happened in Ohio that I would like to make people aware of. Okay. Um, so apparently they defined natural gas as a clean energy source now. Oh, really? So in Ohio, it's defined as clean energy, similar to other types of renewable energy. <laughs> and I just wanted to make people aware of that. Yeah, um, this just happened. So for people who don't know, new law signed into uh, signed in by Governor Mike DeWine designates natural gas as green energy. That is absolutely insane. And I guess the point of it, um, you tell me, Jonathan, you might know more about it. It paves the way to fast track drilling of oil and gas in state parks. That's correct. Um, I actually work in. Yeah, I I work in the natural gas industry um, and there is a lot of fields like in the eastern part of the state uh, that they're trying to get to. So it does. It's really bad for like climate change, obviously. Yeah. And they're trying to set a standard for other states to do, to do this kind of thing. And I just think people should be aware of this and not let it go down the slippery slope. Yeah. Of, like, burning natural gas is not green. That, that I hope people understand that. Now, Jonathan, you work in an industry that you think is bad for the environment, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, like it's like the safety side of it to make sure people, you know, they don't leak or yeah, you know, events don't occur. So I'm on that side of it. But um, my my hope is that the industry migrates to renewables. Right. Um, my company at least is trying to do that. But I just thought it was good information to be aware of. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. when you when we think about renewable and green, it is certainly not natural gas. I appreciate you bringing it to my attention, Jonathan. Yeah, for sure. All right. Jonathan from Ohio delivering some unfortunately depressing news. Let's go to Thomas from the Bronx. Thomas, welcome to the program. Hey, David, how are you? I'm doing well. All right, great. Let me just mute my uh, background work training I'm supposed to be listening to. I love it. So so quick question for you, and it's probably going to start as a question and really more turn into a a request for you to interview some subject matter experts in this area. Okay. So person considers myself on the left. I would love to have a magic wand and make Bernie Sanders 30s years younger and have passed all policies and nationalize pharma and energy, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. But I think a lot of the problems the, the, the world in general, not just the U.S. has, is really the ever-growing population expansion over the past decades and centuries and finding enough resources and jobs, et cetera, to support the ever-growing population. Yeah. So my question is, if we wave the magic wand and everything was nationalized and everything was provided in UBI, et cetera, um, would that tend to lead towards an explosion and expansion of longer life expectancies with healthcare, 
higher birth rates with people not having to, for example, have abortions because they can't afford it? And would there be, you know, playing devil's advocate here, would there be a negative to having kind of all needs met and a super healthy population in regards to expansion of that population? So I believe that Arthur C. Clarke explores this in the novel Childhood's End. Let me see if I can. Yes. Arthur C. Clarke explores this idea in the 1953 novel Childhood's End, which was turned into a miniseries. Maybe it was like Netflix or Amazon. I don't remember. So it's widely explored in science fiction. The belief generally seems to be that if those needs were met, the birth rate would naturally decline. Actually, people would wait longer and choose to have fewer kids and that over time it would actually take care of itself. Now, here's the other issue related to this, Thomas, which is birth rates are already going down, down, down to the point where it's believed that Earth's population is actually going to start declining after peaking. It's I forget the exact dates, but it's going to keep yeah, increasing. China's, China's worried about that now. China's expected to see a population decline yeah. from, I think, one point four to one point three by twenty fifty. Um, yeah. Right. So, no, I, I don't think so. I think the I think people would live better, longer lives and would have fewer kids and it would all fall into a new equilibrium. Okay, then that would be right. And you said Arthur C. Clarke. And you said that was science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke. Childhood's End, Arthur C. Clarke. Excellent novel. I recommend it to you, Thomas. Excellent. Yeah, I'd love to see if you could interviews with, you know, uh, nonfiction <laughs> you know, right. experts that kind of talk about this and see what they think. Because certainly I agree about the, the birth rate thing, but of course with advancing technology and energy consumption and, yep. you, know, no, you know, the population as a whole is not going to turn vegan overnight. So the factory farming would still be an issue. So right. anyway. Thanks for All right, that would Thomas everything. from the Bronx, raising a very important issue to cap off calls for today. I will take more calls again if I have anything to say about it. And I hope to hear from you next time. We'll take a quick break and be back right after this. Don't forget that the best way to support the David Pakman show is by becoming a member, which gives you access to the daily bonus show, the regular show with no commercials. You also get access to our entire archive of every episode dating back a really long time and plenty of other awesome membership perks. Go to joinpacman.com and use the coupon code better 21 for a huge discount. Joinpacman.com. Let's get into the Friday mailbag, the now world famous Friday mailbag. Technically, we got one email from Zanzibar and now it's world famous. OK, let's get right into it. Remember, you can email info at davidpackman.com. You can also contact us via a number of other means, including Facebook, Twitter. Sometimes YouTube comments will be featured. You never know what you're going to have. But today we start with a message from Facebook, and it is a very important message. And that message is about President Joe Biden and the the things that I choose to report on. And this individual says, and I'm reading this as written, I want to be clear. How much do you get from Joe Biden to say that? Really, how much for miss that's MISS information? Really, how much for misinformation? Sir, please show me the respect of addressing me as Mrs. Information. Misinformation is extremely um, uh, informal um, for our relationship, please. And of course, uh, this idea that we are funded by Joe Biden or George Soros or the Trilateral Commission or the Illuminati or the uh, Klaus uh, Klaus Schwab Gates, who knows? Anyway, 
we're funded by people who sign up on our website and by like YouTube ad revenue and a few advertisers we have. There's no secret there. We're very, very clear about exactly how we are funded. Uh, Next message is from Andrew. Andrew wrote in with a suggestion saying, David, try some honest journalism. I am pro vax, but no longer pro covid shot. I understand you have to make this political or keep it political because you have an audience to pander to. But please don't mistake what you do for authentic journalism. I see you, David. Remember, I never claimed to do journalism. I claim to do commentary, which is what I actually do. The very disturbing lack of media literacy in this country uh, leads to messages like this. But more importantly, pandering on the vaccine. I have to say the things I'm saying because of my audience. I've been very, very clear. The first vaccines seemed to prevent infection and transmission as the virus mutated. The vaccines became less and less effective at preventing infection and transmission to the point where my understanding of the latest data is that the newest vaccines don't prevent infection nor transmission, but they are still effective at dramatically reducing the odds that you end up in the hospital or dead. I've never hidden that from the audience. I've been very clear. Um, so I don't know. Email someone who's actually doing the things that you say I'm doing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm getting quite bored with it. Here's someone who writes in like five to ten times a week. They go by CAD. CAD wrote in and said, by the by the way, right away going into their degrees, uh, reeks of either dishonesty or um, uh, some some kind of uh, uh, low self-esteem. OK, CAD writes in. Yes, I am highly educated with multiple degrees and probably smarter than some of your audience members. I love how you mock people and how they talk because it's so hypocritical. You are the one who made me do a deep dive and become Republican. Thank you for that. I contribute to society with my job helping others. I don't read articles and then throw BS out for an hour and a half with no pitch a pushback. You're not as smart as you think. Anyway, do you ever watch yourself on your show? You've got to be so smug because your large teeth and mouth mouth movements are so gross. Side pro profile. Blah. That's the vomit emoji. Blah. Who the hell would ever go out with someone so pompous as yourself? They'd have to constantly stress from being corrected. You're so feminine and your pronunciation is hysterical. It's cringe. Many think you progressives are out of your mind and ruining what was good about this country. Go watch yourself. You are one ugly dude. So before you get on a platform and mock others, look in the mirror. What work of yours should be valued besides mocking people? I guess that's a a statement, not a question. Um, You know, I used to get upset about messages like this because someone is they're They're criticizing so many things about me. And then one of the kind of uh, awakenings I had was I thought to myself, you know, I watch lots of different things. I've never written to anyone that is the host of any show I watch ever. And if I did, I would be embarrassed to send messages like this because they're so bizarre and out there. And so then I imagined, 
what kind of person would even send a message like this? What must their life be like where they have either the time or the idea or the interest of saying, I'm going to go over to my computer or pull out, pull out my phone and write something like this to someone I don't even know. And then I realized how sad the lives of the trolls must be. And then I stopped worrying about them. I actually kind of just feel bad now. And I've spoken to some other people about it and and they who do what I do, and they've sort of come to a similar position. And it really is sad. It really is sad what must be going on in someone's life to think to write something like that to someone else. Anyway, let's get into some of the more substantive stuff. Uh, Andrew from Oregon wrote in with an interesting message. He said one effective question to ask anti-vaxxers. Hey, David, longtime watcher. Love your work. As covid has seen a recent uptick and it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon, the debate over preventative measures continues to rage. I've found a really effective way to stump anti-vaxxers is to ask them what group of experts informs your covid views. They may point to cherry pick data devoid of context or individuals who share their view, but never a collection of experts. There isn't a university, a hospital or scientific body of any sort they rely on. Every time it seems to promote, promote, provoke a moment of self-reflection on the veracity of the source of their information. And I find it's a great foundation to build from. Yeah, this is an interesting idea because often the, the science deniers will say, Ignore everything all doctors say, except this one radiologist who's commenting about vaccines, despite it being completely outside his or her area of expertise. And the question is an interesting one, because when you say what group of experts, they often will say, well, you really can't trust immunologists. Now, you have to trust this one person. All the other immunologists are wrong or you can't really trust pulmonologists because they mostly are lying about covid. But this one uh, pulmonologist has has gotten outside of the bubble. It is a good question. And I think only with some people, only with with people who are most open to having their views um, examined, would it would it have an impact? But it is an interesting idea because it's not about expertise. It's about finding people that already agree with them. And then saying, here's who I'm going to listen to. And I've met people personally during the pandemic who early in the pandemic said, these are the these are the three people that you can really trust during the pandemic. Those three people's views have changed as informed by data and science. And then the people who used to go to them say they can't they are not they're no longer trustworthy. Here's the other people I now trust. Well, it's not that the people are less trustworthy. It's that you you no longer agree with the things that they're saying. And it is uh, it is something I, I see quite often. PK wrote in um, sort of a tongue in cheek response to that guy who called in recently and attacked me for being <laughs> not that tall. Um, and PK wrote in about David's height and weight. It says, Dear David, I am five eight and weigh one sixty five. That obviously gives me a 15 pound intellectual advantage over you. I'm sorry, sir, but that's just the science. Thank you for your time. Yes. And obviously this individual outweighs me by 15 pounds, but it's 15 pounds of brain matter. Certainly I have to make a correction and I'm glad Catherine from the UK is helping me do that. I wrongly stated the other day in passing and as a complete joke that the coleslaw at KFC is vegan. 
um, Catherine wrote in and said, hey, David, watching the video about Bolsonaro in Florida and was keen when you mentioned the coleslaw from KFC being vegan. I'm in the UK where the slaw is not vegan. So I had a look. It's not vegan in the US either. Unfortunately, it's vegan in Canada. I understand, though, perhaps there is hope for the rest of the world. OK, uh, th- yeah, I don't know. I don't really know anything about KFC coleslaw. I remembered that producer Pat once told me the KFC coleslaw was vegan. Pat has no recollection of that. So I don't really know where I got it, but I don't go to KFC and I'm also not vegan. So it ended up being sort of a sort of a moot point, I guess we would say. Oliver wrote in about the phenomenon of they. Oliver says, hey, David, have you noticed that many, especially on the right, are increasingly using the term they to define political opposition. For example, they want to silence us. They want to sexualize children. They are the elite. Is this just a symptom of seemingly populist rhetoric with those on the other side thrown into the one basket, i.e. the elite with no room for substance? Or does it boil down to something else entirely? That's Ollie from Scotland. I don't think they know what they mean. You know, I've had conversations where they'll they they I'm doing it, too. It, it, It is an interesting shorthand. Right wingers who call me, let me be precise. Sometimes some right wingers who call me will say they are not allowing us to investigate the origins of covid. And I'll say, who is they? Uh, Is it Democrats? And they'll go, well, no, it's not really Democrats. No. Is it the media? Is the media preventing anybody from? No, it's not really the media. Is it I don't know, like, is it Marxists? Because that's an uh, an often used trope. No, it's not Mark. And then you see they don't even know who they is. So as a rhetorical technique, I do think it can sometimes be useful to say to those with whom you are speaking, who is they exactly? It's not Biden. It's not Hunter. It's not Fauci. It's not Uh, you know, Anderson Cooper, who is it exactly? And some of them are slicker and they will be more prepared and they'll say something like I I say they because it's the establishment. It's no one person, but it's the total atmosphere created by the. Oh, okay, All right. Uh, But it's a good question. Who do you what do you mean by they? I think it is a it's a useful technique. Email in info at davidpackman.com. And please come on over to the bonus show. You can sign up at joinpackman.com. You can get instant access and it's an extra show every single day for our website members. You can use the coupon code 24 starts now at joinpackman.com.